Good morning, everyone. If you have a copy of your Bible with you, that's great. Open it to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 45 through 52 this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. There's some in the seats you can use. It'll be on the screen for you also, but I never want to deny you the opportunity for a hand-to-Bible experience because there's something very powerful about holding on to God's Word and opening it and saying, Lord, will you speak to my heart? And so they will be on the screen for you this morning as we read them, but if you have a Bible with you, great. And appreciate you online joining us as well. This is Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. And it says, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After saying farewell to them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Then evening came. The boat was out to sea, and he was alone on the land. And when he saw that they were straining at the oars against the adverse wind, he came towards them early in the morning, walking on the sea. He intended to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately... Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. We are in a series, 13 weeks, looking at extraordinary stories out of the Gospel of Mark. It's called Amazed and Afraid, because Mark, in particular, captures in great detail people's responses to the things that Jesus said and did. And often, they were amazed, as they were in the story today, at some of the things that he was doing and saying. And, as often, they were afraid of some of the things that he was doing or saying. And again, like today's story, sometimes they're both. So we're looking at this story about Jesus inviting the disciples out into deeper water. He sends them out, the 12 of them alone, into the deeper waters at night where they face a giant storm. Now, if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know this is the second time that Jesus has encountered a force of nature and has won that battle. What it's doing is showing us Jesus has authority over the natural world. And we were here last week as we learned about his mastery over the spiritual world as well, the supernatural. So we're really getting this extraordinary picture of who Jesus is and what he does. Now, I have to give you a little bit of a confession as we open up this story today. I am by nature afraid of deep water. I didn't grow up uh, on a lake, and I've had some experiences when I was a kid uh, in deep water, in a pool, and then many other times in lakes that have just caused me to have kind of a a little bit of a fear. So as I read that story of these disciples on a boat at night, and the wind is keeping them from moving along, and they're having a hard time, I can feel that because I really do have a fear of deep water. 
I swear, I promise that I think uh, uh, Lake Michigan has it out for me. I think she's trying to get me. I really do. Every time I'm in there and I can't touch the bottom, I feel like she's grabbing at my ankles, saying, come down. Now, I, that, again, there's, there's a story behind that. This was some years ago. I was on a company outing, and my boss had a boat docked it about 50 yards off the shoreline near Grand Haven. Beautiful day. Everyone jumped in the water and swam into the beach and was climbing up on the dunes, and I thought, well, that looks like fun. I'll jump in too. So I jump in. I'm starting to swim towards the, the shoreline. You know, and I'm, I'm not that great a swimmer. I can't make that up. But I'm going along, and I'm like, okay, this is going to be fun. Get to get to the shore. We're going to climb the dunes. And then I just found, like, I'm not really getting closer to the shore much. In fact, I'm not getting much closer to the boat anymore either. I seem to be drifting off in this other direction. So now I'm looking, and I'm like, okay, the boat's way over there, and the shore's way over there. This isn't good. Slowly, the waves are coming up, and now, you know, at first they're at my shoulders, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep up, right? But then suddenly, the, the waves are now up to my neck. Then the waves are now at my chin. And now the waves are just coming over my ears. With every wave, it's getting a little bit lower and lower. Now, you might ask yourself, well, why didn't you scream out for help? I have this weird thing about me. I'm really not a panicker, at least in the moment. I just found myself thinking, well, this is not good. This is how it's going to end? Lake Michigan has always wanted me. And just as the water is about here over my face, a coworker saw me, and he was riding on a jet ski. And he looked over, and he's like, that doesn't look good. Small footnote that I shared in between services. He actually didn't like me that much either. <laughs> Another story. But he graciously came over with the jet ski, grabbed me by the arm, and hoisted me on and, and saved me. He's like, that sure didn't look good, that's for sure. So I have this uh, innate fear of kind of deep water. But I also want to share with you, I also have a fear of deeper water in a spiritual sense. Because sometimes God has led me towards deeper water in my own personal spiritual walk as well. And when I talk about deeper water, what I mean are seasons of testing or seasons of trial or seasons of, of him calling my heart to experience more of his grace at a deeper level or maybe even a new level of obedience he's calling me into. I kind of consider those deeper water moments. I've experienced deeper water moments in our marriage. When it's really, is, this, is it worth the effort for us to try to set Christ as the center of our lives and work towards that? That's deeper water. Or even in family, planning. Sometimes people look at five kids and, and they're getting a lot bigger and taller than me and they eat a lot and people go, boy, I don't know how you guys do it. And I'm like, I don't either. It's certainly more than we can handle. It's certainly more than we can afford. These are the deeper waters, but I will tell you in every way, God is so gracious, and I love them so much. There's another way that he calls us into deeper waters. For me, I have that weird experience of leaving uh, a career that was not in ministry. It was, it was a, a different kind of work, and then I started pursuing this calling towards ministry. Next thing you know, I'm going to school full-time again as like an adult and working on a garbage truck to barely pay the bills that were coming in. And I remember at that moment just going, boy, it just feels like we're in the deeper water of really having to trust him. And just like that experience on the, the Lake Michigan that day, I don't know if I can really see the shoreline all that well. And it just feels like I'm drifting out here. God will sometimes call us out into deeper water. And this is a place where 
our dependence on him is greater and where he shapes us so that we, we have to depend on him more and be more trusting of him. And this is exactly where he has put the disciples in our story this morning. He has sent them out into deeper water. Now, you might ask yourself, why would he do that? Why does God send us out into deeper water? Why did he send the disciples out that night into deeper water? And I'm going to give you an answer that I heard in my heart clear as a bell one night when I was outside in a deep water moment, like, God, why is this happening? Why are you doing this? Why do you lead me into this place sometimes where I just feel like I'm lost or, and out there alone? What are you doing here? And I felt these words rain down out of heaven, and I'm sharing with you this morning. He said, I'm doing this so you know you can trust me. I'm doing this so you always know you can trust me. And I remember thinking, like, wait, 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 what does that mean? Wait, can I get a chance for rebuttal? Can we talk about this at all? What do you mean you're doing this so that I can learn to trust you? But that's what he does. He leads us into these deeper waters of faith, trial and testing and urging towards new levels of discipleship and obedience to him to show us that he is good and he can be trusted. Because here's the thing, friends. If we just splash around in the shallows, we might never feel like we need a Savior. The story that we read, and we're going to dig through a little bit more, uh, this morning reveals to us a lot about the character of God and who he is, especially when we're in those deep water moments. We're going to see a lot about his character and how he relates to us as Messiah, which is like Savior, as uh, Lord, which is like boss or guide, and even as God himself, Jesus is calling us to trust him into the deeper waters. So let me pray as we continue to encounter God's word that he speaks to his heart, mind, and soul. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this gathering this morning of friends here in person. We thank you, Lord, for our friends who are gathered there online. And Lord, I thank you that we are gathered here not only as Hinsdale Covenant Church in here in Chopra, India, but Lord, your church is gathered all around the world on this, your Sabbath day. And perhaps millions this morning are cracking open your word and asking your spirit to reveal yourself to them. Father, we join them. We ask, God, that you would use your sacred word to speak fresh to us today. And if anyone's here this morning and already they're thinking to themselves, I'm in a deep water moment. Lord, would you lay your hand on their shoulder and comfort them by your spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look back at our story again. Matthew chapter 6. Again, our series is Amazed and Afraid. We're seeing both examples, uh, both emotional responses in our story this morning. It begins by showing us that Jesus is a compassionate God. Jesus is a compassionate God. And this story of sending him out into the boat is framed right after the feeding of the 5,000, which is a, a, a very special moment. Maybe some of you have heard of it. It's right, the, the paragraph right before that. Jesus has fed 5,000 people 
And he's done it by his teaching and by physical bread. Because when he, when he encountered these 5,000, they were so desperate for healing and for learning, he looked at them. And the word says he looked at them and he said, boy, they're like sheep, like without a shepherd. So he began to shepherd them and teach them and encourage them. And then he observed at some point after uh, some hours of teaching, he said, you know, they're starting to look kind of hungry. They could use something to eat. And the disciples, they said, well, why don't you send them off into town so they can go buy themselves something? There's some nice shops down the way that have good sandwiches. Jesus says to the disciples, I got an idea. How about we feed them out of what you have? What do you mean? We only got a couple of pieces of bread and some fish. We're not sure how willingly they handed it over, but we do know by the word that he took it and he blessed it and he broke it and he passed it out among the 5,000 and they all ate until they were filled. Now this is an unusual buffet experience in the ancient world because back then they didn't always eat until they were full. That would be a rare experience. We're all looking forward to that later today with the nachos and stuff. They didn't do that much, eat till they were full. So this was an extraordinary experience. Wait, we get to eat till we're full? This guy has food like that? Now we know from later in the story that there was something about this bread moment that the disciples themselves didn't really grasp. They didn't get it. But Jesus was being very compassionate to the 5,000 and caring for them. We're going to get to what they didn't understand towards the end of this message here. But second part is that Jesus is a sending God. He's a sending God. And he sends them out now into the boat. And in fact, the word says immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. He made them get into the boat. There's a force behind this word made that we might lose in just saying, oh, he made them. No, he made them. He, told, he insisted they get on the boat and head off into the deeper water. You get in the boat and head off to bedside, but Jesus, but Jesus, no, 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 you're going. Many of you might have experienced that this morning, getting kids to, to church. Come on, no, we're going. He made them get in the boat and go off. He's ascending God. He made them get in the boat and push them off towards Bethsaida. Now, why did he do that? If we look at one of the other accounts of this moment, it, possibly from the Gospel of John, see the 5,000 after eating till their bellies are full, like, this guy's awesome, we should make him king. Let's make him king right now. And they started getting kind of crazy. It's possible Jesus sent the disciples off to protect them from that kind of thinking. We don't know that. But what we do know is that God is always ascending God. Always. Going all the way back to the beginning of the story when there's, there's a fall of mankind and there's a sin outbreak and God says, don't worry, I will send a deliverer for this sin problem. And the story continued. He sends Abraham, Abraham, he sends Moses, he sends judges, he sends prophets. God is ascending God. He sent his one and only son to us who will later send the Holy Spirit upon all believers and send them all out on mission together. That's a calling that we still connect with today. He is ascending God. And earlier in the chapter, Mark chapter 6, the disciples were just coming back from being sent out on mission. And now he's sending them out again. Get in the boat, go, and start heading off to the other side of the lake. He sends them out into deeper waters, this time alone. He's not going to sleep on the back of the boat this time. They're alone. I loved what Pastor Joy shared uh, last week. She talked about water 
literally and figuratively in the Gospels, whenever you read about water in the Scriptures, it brings to mind in the, in the readers of that time, it's a place of chaos and death, to which I say amen. Yes, it is a place of chaos and death, at least from my perspective. I can relate to that so well. Ah, she's always pulling on my ankles. So why does he do this? Why does he send them out into the waters? So that they know he can be trusted. He's also an interceding God. We see that in the story. As immediately gets them into the boat, sends them off to the other side. He takes care of the crowd, sends them away. Full and happy, after saying farewell to everybody, he goes up to the mountain to pray. He is an interceding God, a prayerful God. Jesus ascends the mountain to pray. This is something that he often did to refocus his heart on, the, on his obedience to the will of God, especially when there were moments of overwhelming crowds' need. He would pray also, we know, for the unity and protection of his disciples. And we know that because we get a peek at some of Jesus' prayers in you know, John chapter 17, high priestly prayer, Garden of Gethsemane moments. We, we know these themes of Jesus' prayer are often like, keep us connected to your will, Lord Jesus, and protect them from evil. Keep them in unity. This is what Jesus liked to pray. May your will be done, Lord, and protect them from the evil ones. Sound familiar? Keep them in unity. This is a very encouraging idea that Jesus is an interceding God, because he still is. And if you are here this morning and you find yourself in kind of a deeper water moment, it's hopefully helpful to you as it's been to me to know that Jesus is now there on the high mountain, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, praying for you. Lord, protect them, guide them, keep them safe, keep them in unity. I hope that's a really encouraging thought to you. He's also a watchful God. He's up on the mountaintop. Verse 48 says, He saw them straining at the oars against the wind that was in their faces. In other words, they were paddling and not getting anywhere. But he saw them as they were straining at the oars against the adverse wind. Now they presumably at this time have been out there for maybe up to six hours or so paddling along and trying. So it's possible that he had seen them from, you know, quite a ways away, maybe in a mile and a half, two miles, perhaps. Uh, how did he do that? If it's at night and there's a storm and there's winds and waves, how did he possibly see them? I, I think we get insight to that in the Gospel of John. John writes in, in chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. I don't care how far away they were. I don't care how bad that storm was that night. He saw them. He saw them struggling. And if we believe, as we should, that God's eye is even on the sparrow, then we can trust that Jesus sees us in our struggles and will always draw near. And will always draw near. Now, I'll warn you. This is the part of the story that gets a little bit weird, okay? So we look at the word. He sees them. 
straining against the oars, the wind is in their face. And he came towards them early in the morning, and he was walking on top of the water. He came towards them early in the morning, and he's walking on top of the water as certain as I'm walking on the ground right now. And it says that he may have intended to pass them by. We're going to get to that. But he came to them, and he was walking on top of the water. This must have been an incredible sight because the water wasn't steady. It was churning and choppy. And Jesus is there walking on top of it at night. And of course, they were terrified. Now, being in a place of chaos and death, they assumed what anyone else might have. What is that out there? Is that a ghost? Are you kidding me? And they all looked and were terrified because maybe it was the ghost of somebody that had come up from the deep and was like, you know, trying to claim them over. Now, I hope, too, that you have never heard a sermon where it says, oh, it was probably a low tide space or a sandbar, or he was walking along the shoreline and they just assumed he was on the water. I hope that you've never heard that. It's, people think that sometimes. Because we try to be rational about these moments, but what we end up doing is we end up taking the authority out of it. When we rationalize it, we're like, well, it must have been this, it must have been, no. We have to assume, no, he has authority over this, and he's demonstrating his authority over the storm by standing on top of it. Which tells us again that he has authority over anything super and natural. What does this tell us? That Jesus is walking on top of storm water? It tells us there is nothing that we can face in this world that he does not overcome. There is nothing that we can face in this world that he does not stand on top of. There is nothing that we can face in this world that he does not have mastery over. That's what it means when Jesus is like, oh, storm? I'm good on that. And he's walking towards him. Now, they were terrified. They were absolutely terrified. And that's where we get to the part of the, where that it, it says, and it looked as if he was intending to pass them by. Now, this is a little bit weird, right? He's walking towards them on top of the water. They're terrified, and it seemed like he was just going to keep on walking by. What does that tell us? It tells us that he's a confident God. He's a confident God. Now, what the word tells us in the story, it didn't say they were any mortal, mortal danger. Their faces weren't under the water like maybe I were. They were struggling along, and they had been rowing for quite a long time, again, up to six to nine hours. They were beat but they weren't necessarily in any mortal danger. It's possible that in walking by them, Jesus said, oh, you guys are going to be fine. I'll meet you on the beach. You're good. But I think more importantly, Mark, the writer here, probably instructed by Peter, is always careful to understand the actions of Jesus against the Old Testament encounters with God. Mark is always very careful to map the moments of Jesus with key moments in the Old Testament where God was revealed. And in this particular case, as we picture this idea that Jesus is going to walk by them, it reminds us of an amazing moment back in the story of Exodus chapter 33 where Moses was trying to really trust God to walk with him and be his friend. He's like, God, I need to see you, though. In order to trust you, oh, I really need to see you. Can I see your face? Please. And God responds to him graciously. He says, look, you go up in this high mountain part, and I'll tell you what, I will make all of my goodness pass by you. Pass you by. And you can look at that wake 
and you could know who I am. Oh, God, I just want to see you. I'll pass you by, and you can look at where I've been, and that's going to tell you who I am. See, often, when we want to know, God, where are you? What are you doing? It's important for us to look at what he has done, where he has been. This is why it's so important for us to grasp Scripture, because it's the definitive word of what God has been doing, has done in the past. And by reading that, we can understand who he is and what he's doing right now. It's also important to know your own story, your own testimony of faith, and how God has moved towards you in the past to remind you what he's doing now today. It's also important for us to see not just where, he, where he's been, but also where he's going. As he passed them by, they would have a sense of where he's going. It's important for us to lock our eyes and hearts on where he's leading us to this eternal glory, this future kingdom that will never end. You want to see me, he said to Moses? Look at, look at me pass by. You'll see where I've been, what I've done, and where I'm going. You notice also in this text, though, it says, I will make all of my goodness pass by you, and I will proclaim to you, proclaim before you the name of the Lord. When I pass you by, I will proclaim to you the name of the Lord. And that's exactly what happened that night in the deep water. Jesus seemed like he was intending to pass them by. Don't worry, guys. I'll see you when I get there. Instead, he stopped. Hearing the cries, he moved towards the boat. And he said, guys, I want you to take this to your heart right now. It is I. Another way to translate that moment when he said, is I, is I am. The name of the Lord. I am. Take this to your heart. I am. Do not be afraid. You can trust me. Which then leads us to this. Jesus is God with us. He graciously gets in the boat. Immediately the wind stops and there's calm and they now can continue their journey. I always wondered, somebody in the boat go, why? Why did, why did you just do this? Ah, I did it so you always know you can trust me. Their response to this moment was captured in Scripture. I, I think the King James actually renders it, uh, it with the best force. Anybody grow up with the King James, King Jimmy? A couple of people know, okay? It says it this way. They were sore amazed. They were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they wondered. They were sore amazed. In other words, they were so amazed it hurt. It was painful. And again, I can relate to that. I remember after the friend got me up on the, on the uh, jet ski and took me safely back to the boat, and I got back on the boat, and it was uh, back on at least, you know, somewhat solid ground. I remember getting this kind of sick feeling. You ever have that when you've been really scared, that kind of painful, sick feeling of like, what did I just encounter? What did I just do? How close was I? They were sore amazed. They were painfully amazed. It hurt. And they wondered to themselves, who is this? Now, this is not just for them, friends. This is us also. When we finally get it, we're saved. Because of what Jesus has done, we're saved. And as we walk now into deeper waters, 
we're being saved again and again and again because he's God with us. I want to remind you that there is nothing that you are struggling with this morning. There is no deep water that you're experiencing right now, internally or externally in the world, that Jesus Christ has not overcome. There is nothing you're experiencing, no weight, no storm, that he has not overcome. There is nothing in deep water experience in your life right now that he does not stand over. There is no storms in your life that he is not leading you through to show you that you can trust him. So do you? Do you? Do you trust him? Because if we live our faith in the shallows, we don't always need a savior. But when we follow his lead into the deeper waters, these scriptures that seem mysterious to us at times make sense. Romans 8.18 says, Paul says, I consider that all the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that's about to be revealed. And then later he says, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. A faith life in the shallows doesn't always need a savior, but a faith life that's willing to follow and trust him, even in those deep water moments, always has a hope because we have a savior who's interceding, who's watching, and will draw near with all of his goodness and to proclaim his name over us and to assure us we do not need to be afraid. So are you living a life right now of faith or fear, of wonder or of worry? Are you trusting him eternally or are you still trying to row this boat yourself? God leads us into deeper water so we can learn to trust him. The disciples didn't get it. Weird footnote in the story, they didn't get it. It says they didn't really grasp it because they were still thinking about the bread. It says in a weird way, their hearts were hardened. Hard hearts means they were, they were not soft. They weren't open to new levels of trust and understanding. It meant there was something about that bread moment that they just didn't get. And it's possible they didn't understand that Jesus wasn't coming just to feed bodies. He was coming to present a spiritual food, the bread of heaven, presented through his faithfulness and his sacrifice. So with that in mind, we turn to the table to experience a fresh grace this morning. I'm going to pray, and then I've got a shared prayer of confession. We prepare our hearts to serve together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word. Help us, Lord, to live a life of wonder and of awe, trusting in you, Lord, as our compassionate, sending, watchful, and confident God who is with us. Lord, now as we turn to the table, open our hearts, make them soft to have an encounter with you today that is filling and leading now on the screen, we have a prayer of confession for all of us to share, a way to prepare our hearts to receive. We say, merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in our thoughts, words, and actions by what we have done 
and by what we have left undone. We have not trusted